A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content, such as adult language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. If you've visited Chicago in the past couple decades, odds are you've probably dragged someone or been dragged to a sculpture called Cloudgate. If that name doesn't ring a bell, that's probably because everybody just calls it the bean. You know, it's the sculpture that looks like a giant shiny bean. It's smack dab in the middle of downtown Chicago, and just a couple hundred feet away is Jewelers Row, a stretch of Wabash Avenue that's packed with jewelry stores. Of course, that means it's long been on the radar, of guys like Frank Collada. In 1961, I just did a year, nine months in the correctional, another jail. And I get out. Remember Frank? Well, by the time he was in his early 20s, Frank had made a name for himself as a thief in Chicago. And in 1961, he had his eyes set on the crown jewel of the city's diamond district. And the billing's called the Muller billing. Once you got Once power, you got a lot of power, 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 you don't care about the money anymore. For the Las Vegas Review-Journal, in partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm Reed Redmond. He's one of you, you kill him. You're listening to Mobbed Up, a true story about money. You're not supposed to have a profile like that, especially in Vegas. Crime. You want to be very quiet so you can steal the money. He always said if you pull a gun on somebody, you finish it. Because if you don't, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I remember saying, what's going on here? And he's saying, they're trying to kill me. And I said, who's trying to kill you? And then he shut up. And the fight for control of Las Vegas. The FBI will continue to look to the future to use the latest and most sophisticated techniques to fight organized crime. The mob would have destroyed Las Vegas. It's only a question, not if, but when it would be destroyed. I was there every day with these fellas. I had no idea that there was uh, a mob. And he once told somebody, there's bodies out there in the desert, and there's more every day. But if there is one area where the word war is appropriate, it is in the fight against crime. When you grab them, you'll bring them to the desert. You're going to know where the hole has been dug. Part 3 claim to fame. At the end of part two, Frank Collada had decided to stop going out on scores with his neighbor, Crazy Bob. But he continued pursuing a career as a criminal, and a handful of years later, in 1961, he was getting ready for one of the biggest jobs he would ever take part in. The Mahler's building in Chicago is a 21-story high-rise that today houses something in the ballpark of 200 jewelry stores. Frank tells me he and a partner of his, Dickie Gorman, had been recruited to carry out the score. They'd gotten a tip that a jeweler from New York City would be coming to the building to sell loose diamonds. 
he goes through the whole building and sells diamonds to these jewelers. I never was there before, but then after, you know, I went and cased it out, of course, before you arrive. I noticed that every floor, there were jewelry stores. Wholesale, you could buy them wholesale and jewelry. But I also knew that they had a hell of a security system done. If somebody alerted that there was a robbery in progress, they had gates that would come down and block the stairwells. So basically, you'd be trapped on a floor. The elevators would shut down. So you had to be very careful. Nobody sounded an alarm. Frank and Dickie had a couple guys on the inside who were supposed to notify them when the diamonds were inside the building. They wanted to be close by when that happened. So when the time came, they parked a car in the suburbs and took the L, Chicago's public train system downtown, doing their best to pass for businessmen heading downtown for work. So we went down there with top coats, fedoras, young guys. They booked a room in a nearby hotel using a fake name, Mr. Sterling, and waited for the signal. After a couple hours, the hotel finally called up with a message. So we're laying, he's laying on one bed, I'm laying on the other. We're watching TV or some shit. Phone rings. I figure, well, maybe hopefully the guy's there. So we pick up the phone. Your package has arrived, Mr. Sterling. The diamonds were in the Mahler's building. Put the phone on, the briefcase with the guns on them. We had two briefcases with guns on them. Put the overcoats on with the fedoras. Walk out of the Palmer house. Check out. We checked out. You want to make sure you check out? Checked out real nice. Proceeded to walk. Went across the street. Jumped on the elevator. Got off at the third floor or fourth floor. I forgot. Went all the way up to maybe the sixth floor or seventh floor. Got out. Then walked up another flight to go. You know what I mean? We were covering our tracks. Finally, Frank and Dickie reached the store where the New York jeweler and the diamonds were supposed to be. So we go into into a little waiting room, knock on the door. Someone came to open the door, and Dickie flashed a fake security card. Guy opens up the door. When he opens up the door, we rush in there. We got the guns on. There's a New York jeweler. I don't know. That's what he was, a New York jeweler. He's sitting in the chair. He's like stunned. Frank says he would later find out that the two store owners were the ones who had provided the tip in the first place. Apparently, they were going to get a cut of the score and be able to claim the loss on their insurance. At that time, I didn't know that they were part of this robbery. Right? I didn't know that they were doing it for insurance purposes. So we it all of them on the ground, and uh, Dickie's tying them up. And I go in the room on the side to go to the safe. And the safe's open. There's no money in there. There's no jewelry. I said, what the fuck? Where? The store's safe was empty, of course, because the store owners were in on the job. Dickie had apparently figured that out, so he told Frank not to worry, that they'd talk later. Meanwhile, they'd gotten a hold of what they came for, the pouch of loose diamonds. So we got these guys tied up, and we got the money, the diamond pouch. It's about a foot, a foot long. And it's maybe three or four inches high. So we'd leave out, and he leaves. I said, go ahead, I'll wait up there till I'm sure you're out of the building. So he leaves, and I wait. And I know, I know how long it takes to get from up there to down. Then I follow. 
same procedure, elevator, or not two flights down, jump on an elevator. Back then, we still worried about cameras. They probably didn't have any, but I didn't care. We did the same procedure. The leaf, I walk across the street, he's already there. He's at the platform downstairs. We had it, it was planned perfect, believe me. I meet him at the platform, here comes the train, boom. We jump on the train and we go back. And as we're going back, you can hear all the police cars on the freeway, they're all heading towards up there. And we're on the we're on the train going back already. So we get back and uh, we jump in the car and uh, I open up the pouch, or Dickie opens up the pouch and he's going through it there in cellophane. Diamonds, loose diamonds are in cellophane packets. This fucking thing is loaded with them. The two thieves had made off with a small fortune. And he's going, holy Christ. And I look over and I say, man, I said, that's a lot of diamonds. Problem was, they couldn't keep it. This was what Frank calls an outfit job. They'd gotten the tip about the score through the mob, and they'd only been promised 10 grand apiece. It may not have seemed like a bad deal before the score, but looking at this pouch of diamonds, the two robbers both knew it was worth a lot more. Hundreds of thousands of dollars more. In fact, Frank says he later heard on the news that the score was worth somewhere around half a million dollars. I said, we're only getting 10,000 a face. says, we're getting screwed. He said, yeah, I know. Jesus Christ, I'm going like that. And I and Dickie says, I'm going to tell him. I said, you know what, just forget it. I says, it might be the last time you tell anybody anything. Frank had received the tip on the Mahler's building from his friend, Tony Spilatro. See, Tony had also dropped out of high school and, like Frank, dove headfirst into the criminal underworld of Chicago. According to Frank, even back when they were teenagers, Tony was beginning to get in with the mob, and he would sometimes approach Frank with opportunities, tips he'd gotten from friends in the outfit. Frank remembers one of these earlier scores particularly well. He was about 18 years old and had just gotten out of a juvenile corrections facility. Tony was uh, out there still stealing. We, st- we had stole prior to me going there. So he approaches me and he said, listen, he says, uh, I got included in on this burglary of a bank in Indiana. He said, I haven't looked at it or checked it out yet. He said, Dickie Gorman, just Richard Gorman, he says, and you and me could go on it with this guy, Joe Lombardo, and two of his associates from Grand and Ogden. Joe Lombardo is a name that will come up a few more times throughout this series. And just to be clear, the Chicago outfit figure, Joseph or Joey the Clown Lombardo, has no relation to Joe Lombardo, the current sheriff of Clark County, Nevada. Joey the Clown would go on to become a high-ranking member of the Chicago outfit. When I met Frank for the first time in October of 2019, he actually told me Joey Lombardo was probably the last mobster out there who wanted him dead. But Lombardo had died in prison the week before, so Frank assured me we were probably in the clear. Anyway... Back to the burglary. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean a burglary at a bank? I said, explain it to me. He said, well, we're going to rob the safety deposit box. Boxes. And people can't complain. They can't tell you how much. In other words, they, when they talk to the police, they can't say, I had 500000 and they're 5000 because they're beating the government. 
I saw him. He said, we're going to go down there, and I'm going to introduce you to Joe and his two associates. So Dickie and I and Tony went down there. Tony knew Joe from Grant and Ogden. So we go meet, and I, I don't know the other two guys. I know of Joe Lombardo. I know he worked for the Chicago outfit. He ran crap games. They call him Joey the Clown. Crap games are dice games. Did it in the alley, alleys and stuff. Then they got bigger and they went to brooms, you know. So we decided in a week to take a ride there. So six of us in a car. There's a lot of guys in the car. Cars were bigger than two. We drive to Indiana. And there's this uh, building, and next to it is a bank. The building next to the bank was vacant. So we figured we'd go to the vacant building, go into the basement. There was basements back then. Go through the foundation, into the bank. Once we were into the bank, we would make our way in their basement to where their vault was. Of course, we walked the footage off prior to that. In other words, one of us went into the bank and went from the door, front door, to where the vault was, the walk-in vault. So when you got down in that basement, you'd walk to that particular spot and then walk maybe another 10 feet this way, then above you was the vault. So we had to bring a lot of tools with us. We had to bring torches, tanks, and stuff to cut the rebarb that would support that floor. They brought all the tools as well as two fictitiously licensed vehicles, as Frank calls them, Bork cars. One of the guys would wait outside and monitor a police radio, while the rest of the crew went into the vacant building and got to work cutting a hole through the ceiling. We figured it was going to take at least 24 hours. We knew it was the weekend, so we had that much time. And uh, we took turns. Beating on a ceiling that's concrete, a lot of work on your arms. We didn't work construction for a living, so this was like really hard work. So we all took turns, and we hit that rebarb, then we cut it with the torch and yank it down. Of course, we didn't touch it, it was too hot. We used other things to pull it down. Once we had that hole, then we helped each other get up in there. We lifted each other to get in there one at a time. Just like that, the crew of burglars was inside the bank vault, and they were determined to clean the place out busting open safety deposit boxes. So as we start pounding them open, and I mean pounding them open, none of these modern things they use in the movies, chisels and sludges, five pound sludges. We open up these boxes and we start dumping them only the cash and the jewelry and the duffel bags, all the paperwork and shit people keep, just cast it aside and loaded up, I don't know, seven duffel bags. Frank says the crew had picked this particular bank because it was in a rural area. And a lot of farmers, at least according to Frank, didn't believe in putting their money into an account. Instead, they filled up safety deposit boxes with valuables and cold hard cash. And what are they gonna say, I got robbed for 50,000, 25,000? Why you got that much money in there? You're not supposed to have that kind of money in there. The crew loaded up the duffel bags into one of their work cars and took off, driving back to a boarded-up house in Chicago to count and divvy up their score. Carried all these duffel bags and left the car in the garage. We didn't... We ate right away. We ate. We were hungry. The guy's wife wasn't home. 
and uh, we started counting the money. We had rubber bands. And we put it into stacks of a thousand. Full size bed, you know, a full size bed is right. Not a king size, a full size. Approximately a foot high, the money was. Covered the whole bed. The jewelry left on the side, we weren't interested in that. We were going to sell it, but we weren't interested. When we got done counting it, it took a day, an easy day, because you got all kinds of denominations of money. Come out to 750000 I, I thought I was a millionaire, multi-millionaire. Smart on, all this money. It's a lot of money. Back then. This was the mid-1950s. $750,000 back then would be just over $7 million in 2020. Not a bad payday for an 18-year-old kid, even after it would be split with the rest of the crew. But Frank was about to learn a valuable lesson. If you wanted to be a criminal in Chicago, you had to make the outfit happy. Joe Lombardo says, you know, we got to kick in 20% to the outfit. I looked at him. I didn't know you had to do that. I said, fuck that. I ain't giving nobody 20%. They weren't even there. He said, how did they know you even robbed this giant? So Tony says, Frankie, he said, Joe works for these guys. He's going to have to tell them. And we're going to be in trouble if we don't. They don't take it off from us. They got a bigger army than us. It was true. The outfit had a much, much bigger army than they did. The syndicate's influence had expanded throughout the Chicagoland area during Prohibition, under the leadership of the likes of Jim Colosimo, Johnny Torrio, and of course, Al Capone. After the repeal of Prohibition in 1933, the Chicago outfit shifted its focus toward other enterprises, loan sharking, illegal gambling, and street crime. By the 1950s, the Chicago outfit was nothing short of a criminal empire comprised of hundreds, if not thousands, of members and associates. So, if you wanted to operate in the criminal underworld of Chicago, you either had to pay up, or put your life in the hands of one of the most powerful underworld organizations in the history of the United States. And when you put it like that, 20% starts to seem like a more reasonable price to pay. So, in the end, I went along. Everybody did except one guy. I don't know whatever happened to him. Let's put it like that. When all was said and done, Frank says he ended up with about $50,000, plus whatever the jewelry was worth. See, the money was one thing, but to young criminals like Frank Collada and Tony Spilatro, the reputation that came with it was even more valuable. I was an instant big shot then with all that friggin' money. See, money draws power. Money brings power. Once you got power, a lot of power, you don't care about the money no more. That's the truth. You just want power. Power. That's what it was all about. But the kind of power Frank wanted was different from the kind of power his friend Tony was after. Tony, according to Frank, always wanted to be a full-blown member of the Chicago Outfit. He wanted to be a main man. And uh, we sort of went our own ways then. Because I was not going to drive the fucking kind of cars that all these guys drove. I was not going to dress the way they dressed. I wanted to dress the way I want. I wanted to buy tailor-made clothes. You wanted to spend your money. I wanted to spend my money. That's why I stole it. I wanted to drive a Cadillac or an Oldsmobile. I wasn't going to drive a Ford or a Chevy. I wasn't in the outfit, then. 
Oh, you got to keep a low profile. Forget about it. Indiana, that is. We're here. What do they know? So I went out and bought a Cadillac convertible. You know, used one, but I bought a Cadillac convertible. Everybody was mad at me. Not mad where they wouldn't talk to me no more, but that's what I wanted to do. After the break, Tony gets his shot at becoming a made man. If we jump ahead just a bit to the early 1960s, Frank Collada and Tony Spilatro were still pursuing criminal careers, but they were headed down different paths. Frank had plenty of connections with the Chicago outfit, but he liked his independence and was determined to continue operating on his own. He says Tony was after something else, that he'd always wanted to become a member of the Chicago outfit. There's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about what uh, being a made man is and why it's important. Jeff Schumacher, vice president of exhibits and programs at the Ma Museum. By and large, the, the masses of individuals who were involved with the mob, you know, over the decades were not made men, quote unquote. They were associates, they were producers, they were soldiers, they were accomplices. See, not just anyone could become a made member. You had to prove your loyalty to the organization. It has to do with agreeing to an oath to the group, to this secret society that supersedes even any family obligations. So one of the classic lines in describing what it means to be to be a made man is if your mom is dying, on, she's on her deathbed and you want to be by her side to talk to her and, and soothe her, on her in her final moments. If the boss of the, of the secret society calls you, what do you do? Do you tell him, hold on a minute? No, you do not. If you're a made man, you are obligated to do exactly what the boss wants you to do immediately. So it supersedes family even. And it also in very much involves this notion of omerta, which is a code of silence. And you're not to talk about what's going on within the group, certainly not to law enforcement, but really not to anybody. Different crime families have always had different rules when it comes to who can become a made man and how many made members are permitted at any given time. You know, in Chicago, Chicago is different than New York. You know, they never had a lot of made members. It was very tight. You had a lot of associates, but there was an inner circle with those made members. The voice you're hearing belongs to Frank Calabrese Jr., whose father, Frank Calabrese Sr., was a made man in the Chicago outfit. We'll revisit their complicated relationship later on in this series. But for now, just know that even though he wasn't supposed to, Frank Calabrese Sr. told his son about the ceremony he went through to become a made man. See, my dad and my uncle Nick were asked to be made members. They really didn't want it. My dad enjoyed the fact that that he had free reigns on what he did. He turned in his money. He listened when they needed him. So he really didn't want to um, become a made member, but it's still an honor. So what happens is they they get a hold of you 
and you're told to be somewhere, you're told to dress up, and then you're picked up and you're taken to a secret location where they have a secret ceremony. Now, at this secret ceremony, um, you know, and, and it might vary a little uh, from different cities or different uh, mob families, but basically what you're going to do is you're going to go in front of, um, you're going to have your sponsor there, whoever your captain was. You're going to go in front of some bosses. You're going to pledge all these alliances to this new organization. You're going to pledge them ahead of God and your family. So this comes first. And they'll do something like prick your finger, blood in, blood out. They'll burn a holy card of a saint in your hand and um, the one they want to watch if you flinch but the other thing was they that you're going to pledge these alliances and that if you break these codes may you burn in hell like this holy card is burning in your hand. Here's how a made man would later be defined in a federal indictment leading up to one of the most significant mob trials in U.S. history. Quote, an individual engaging in illegal activities on behalf of the outfit who proved himself particularly trustworthy was given special made status in the enterprise, but could not normally be made unless he was of Italian descent and had committed at least one murder on behalf of the enterprise. An individual had to be sponsored by his capo before he could be made, which occurred at a ceremony in which the person to be made swore allegiance to the enterprise. An individual who was made or who committed a murder on behalf of the outfit was obligated to the enterprise for life to perform criminal acts when called upon. Frank Collada didn't have a problem with the notion of having to murder someone to become a made man. True crime author and Frank's biographer, Dennis Griffin. You know, he was willing to kill if necessary. He wasn't just a mass murderer, but if someone had to be dealt with, he was willing to do it. And, uh, and certainly the, the robberies and the strong arm stuff, he, was, uh, he would do it all. But being a young and capable criminal, Frank Collada didn't want the kind of obligation that came with being a made man. He liked his freedom. He liked being a free agent, even if it meant he didn't always have the muscle of the Chicago outfit behind him. A guy like Frank Collada was not a made man, and he was not even necessarily a member of the outfit in any legitimate way. He was an associate of the outfit. They knew him, they used him, but he was not one of them. And he was did not want to become a made man. And, and and Frank will tell you the reason he didn't want to become a made man or didn't want to become a member of the outfit is he didn't like to share. What happens is when you would do a, a robbery or a burglary, if you were a, you were part of the outfit, then you had to share the proceeds with, with the bosses. And Frank didn't want to share. He wanted it all for himself. He was pretty honest about that. But Spilatro aspired to become a made man. He aspired to become a boss within the outfit. He loved the culture. He loved the idea of it. Here's Frank Collada at a 2016 event held at the Mob Museum. Tony always had his aspirations of being, he wanted to be an outfit guy, you know. Cashers don't know what the outfit means. That's the term for mafia, syndicate. We used to call them the outfit in Chicago. Me, I didn't want nothing to do with that. I thought to myself, where do I want to be involved with an organization of guys that take your money all the time? <laughs> Tell you what to do. So we still stole together, and then eventually he went his way and I went my way, and I had a crew of guys, and he started working with upper guys from Cicero. Cicero, Illinois, is where all the top gangsters come from. In 1962, as Frank recalls, Tony was about to get his shot. It started when a couple guys Frank had been doing jobs with got into some trouble 
with the mob. Well, they were thieves. They were armed robbers and burglars. It was Jimmy Moralia and Billy McCarthy. Good thieves. One of their fathers, Jimmy Moralia, was uh, was murdered by the outfit. Uh, I don't know the reason why that's way in the past. But they were both stealing together. And being that I was a crook and a tough guy, they wanted to steal with me. So they invited me to go with them on the robberies. So we start stealing together and drinking together, hanging around together. And uh, Billy always carried a gun. Jimmy we used to call lover boy because he was a handsome one and all the women liked him. And he got married. And so did Billy. They both got married. And they both had children. Frank remembers that at some point, Jimmy and Billy started going to a bar in the suburbs called The Black Door. I've been to The Black Door and I was treated with Roy very well. I also knew the history of the place, so I behaved myself. What Frank means is that the owners of this bar were connected to the Chicago outfit. In other words, you didn't mess with them. But Billy got into a fight with two brothers who worked at the bar, Philly and Ronnie Scavo. What they did, they got into a hassle at a mob-controlled bar, I believe it was called the Black Door, and they got into a, a beef with the management there. And they felt that they had been belittled or mistreated. They'd been thrown out of the bar. Actually, McCarthy had, then he went back regularly, and they both got thrown out. According to Frank, Billy and Jimmy didn't want to let things go. They wanted revenge. I forget it. You know the reputation of that place? Just forget about it. You can't win, Billy. So he goes in there again, this time with Jimmy, Moralia. They both get the shit beat out of him, so thrown out of there. Now they want to kill him. Bad. Are you coming with us? I said, I was hesitant. I said, you know, not a good idea. I said, we could get in a lot of trouble here. If they find out we're all dead, you got to get a permission to kill people, and you know, they just don't do it. It took some convincing, but Frank eventually agreed to go with Jimmy and Billy to get their revenge on the Scavo brothers. We were going to follow them wherever they went and kill them off the property. They waited outside a bar for Ronnie and Philly Scavo, but when the brothers emerged, they weren't alone. There was a waitress with them. So I says, pass, I ain't killing the girl. They went back a couple more times, but this woman, Lydia Abshear, was always with the Scavos when they left. And I was sort of relieved, you know, because I wasn't going to kill this girl, she didn't know. So uh, I'm bowling one night, manor bowling, I'm with a girl, she wanted to bowl. As a side note, Frank and I have lived very, very different lives, but I was happy to learn that we have at least one thing in common, an appreciation for bowling. One night, Frank had a, a date for the, to take a girl bowling, and McCarthy and Wrigley came to the bowling alley, and they wanted to know if Frank was available to go with them. They were going to take another run over to the to this uh, bar and see if they could catch the, the target. So I'm bowling with her, right? I happen to glance at the door, and I see Billy walk in. And he's got a hood over his head. And he was sort of hunched. And I walk over to him. I said, what's up? He says, we're going to go tonight. You coming? I said, really, not tonight. I'm with this broad over there. I'm trying to nail her. 
I said, let's, tomorrow night. He's not, he said, where's the guns? I said, they're in my garage, the same spot. My house was like four blocks away from the Black Door Lounge. I said, just go get him. I said, you know, good luck. Frank spent the rest of the night bowling. The next morning, he says he flipped on the radio and heard about what Jimmy and Billy had done with his guns that night. Two men and a woman were slaughtered on the streets in Elmwood Park. Names will be available later. I said, fuck. I said, they kill him in Elmwood Park. That's a no-no. Elmwood Park was controlled by the Chicago Alpha. Who lived there? All the top guys in the Alpha. As man, these guys screwed up big time. The next night, Frank met up with Billy at a bowling alley. It was a good spot to meet because the cops would never think you're going to bowling alleys. So I met him at the bowling alley and we're bullshit. And I said, uh, what'd you do with the guns? He said, what are you talking about? Uh, you don't want me to know, right? And it's smart. I saw nothing, forget about it. You gotta do that, you know, just let it go. So we laughed and joked about everything. And I thought to myself, you fucking dummy, you just killed yourself. According to Frank, a couple days after meeting up with Billy, he received a phone call from Tony Spilatro. Tony came over to his house, wanting to know about the murders. So we got out of the basement, and he says to me, Tony, he says, listen... He said, were you with Billy and Jimmy when they killed the Scavo brothers? And I smiled and I said, no. He says, well, the outfit thinks you were. He says, and they want to kill you. He said, because you know that's a no-no because of who they're related to. I said, I wasn't there, nor do I know who was there. He says, I uh, told them that you weren't there. He said, I went on the limb. Who was there if you weren't there? So I wasn't there, I don't know. Do you know if they kill him? I said, I don't know. And he's gone, Frankie, I've been defending you, please. If I walk out here, I'm gonna tell him what you said. And they're gonna kill you. You know you can't get away from these guys. It wasn't long after that, Tony came to see Frankie. He said, look, we know that Billy and Jimmy did the hit. But the guys, you know, my Tony's bosses, he said they think that you were in there with them. Were you there? And Frank says, no, I, I wasn't. Frank says he told Tony it was just the two of them, Jimmy and Billy, who were responsible. That he had nothing to do with it. And he says, you're all right. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah. So immediately when he left, I called an electrician. It's the truth. I had floodlights put around my whole house. Activated if you pull in sensors. And I carried a gun immediately. So when I come home, all the lights would go on. It looked like the ballpark, the whole neighborhood would light up. I wanted to make sure that scares people away, lights. And I carried the gun in my armrest. I had a stash in my door. Frank says he agreed to set Billy up for Tony and that he let Tony borrow his car to meet Billy at a restaurant. Here's what he says Tony told him happened after that. Tony parked my car in front of the restaurant. He went in the restaurant. When he seen, he came with two or three other guys. They were in another work car. 
David Berlain slouched down in the seats of the car. When Billy rolled up, they knew he rolled up. They know how he looks. He gets out of the car. I'm not in the restaurant. Tony comes walking out of the restaurant. And Billy says, hey, Tony, how you doing? It's good. He says to Tony, Frank in there? He's not. That's why I went in there. I seen his car. Billy says, oh, yeah. He's not in there. It's not his car. Maybe he's in the bathroom. So Billy starts to what? Tony jumps, grabs him around the throat. We all carried guns in our waistband. Tony pulls the gun out, sticks it in his bag. Tony's hanging on him, actually, because Billy's taller. The other guys jump out of the car. They drag him in the car. Back in them days, if people seen that going on, they turned their head. That's the way life was then. There was no cameras. Nobody took pictures. They minded their own business. Drew him in the car, and he proceeded to beat him up, from what I understand. Took him to Cicero. Brought him downstairs in the basement. Start torturing him with ice picks. Punching him, kicking him, beat him bad. Hit him in the testicles with the ice picks. But they wanted more information out of him. They wanted to know who was with him. When he was true, they put his head in the vice. Frank says Billy didn't want to give up his partner. So Tony began cranking the vice tighter and tighter around Billy's head. When they put the head in the vice, his head was down. His eyeballs popped out, one of them or two of them, I don't remember what I was told. Finally, Billy gave in and told them Jimmy was in on it. And then he told, and then Tony cut his throat. And then they threw him in the trunk. They wrapped him up in something, threw him in the trunk at a car he was driving. Then Tony told me the whole story the following day, what took place. That night, Frank ran into Jimmy at a restaurant. He says that he couldn't help but at least try to warn his friend that his life was in danger. And he's in there with a broad. He's cheating on his old lady. Hey, Frank. Hey, hey Jimmy, what are you doing, buddy? And I I had to say something. You know, these are my friends. But I, I had, this is preservation. You got to survive, you know? So I say, he says to me, what's going on? It's not much. I say, have you heard from Billy? I've been trying to reach him. Because I remember I made that phone call, right? And I, I think he knew about it. So he says, no, I haven't heard from him. I said, well, he's probably with a broad somewhere. You know, lost weekend. And I walk away. I was trying to tip him off without telling him he was dead. You think you'd have enough fucking sense to understand? You don't see our partner in two days. Something's wrong. So I leave. Within days, Jimmy went missing. A couple weeks later, a headline on the front page of the Chicago Tribune read, Bandit Pair is slashed and beaten. The bandit pair was, of course, Billy McCarthy and Jimmy Moralia. Their bodies had been discovered in the trunk of an abandoned vehicle. The way Frank tells it, this was how Tony became a made man in the Chicago outfit. That was Tony's claim to fame. That was a big deal. Because the top guys in Chicago wanted these guys dead. Big deal at the time. Throughout the 1960s, Tony would continue to prove his loyalty to the outfit. And in 1971, the outfit needed a new guy, someone they trusted, to look after their interests in Las Vegas. So Tony was a tough guy and he was rising fast in the mob in Chicago. Frank Calabrese Jr. 
The bosses liked him. They were actually grooming him to be a boss one day. One of his first assignments in the late 60s was actually to come out to Las Vegas and run their interest out here. The guy they had out here prior, they were done with. Review Journal reporter Jeff Gehrman. So Spilatro, you know, got the assignment, I think, in 1971. They sent him out here basically to, to oversee street rackets, get into loan sharking, uh, robberies, other crimes, illegal bookmaking, and also oversee casino skim. Part four of Mobbed Up. Organized crime infiltrates Las Vegas. The mob had been, of course, heavily integrated in the casino industry here from day one, from 1931 or 32. Uh, Bugsy Seagulls and all the rest. I mean, they're the ones who built it. This has been part three of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. As always, if you're enjoying the series, make sure you subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, sharing the podcast on social media, or telling a couple friends. Mobbed Up is reported and produced by me, Reed Redmond. If you have any tips, questions, or feedback, you can reach me on Twitter at Red Redmond, or shoot an email to rredmond at reviewjournal.com. Our sound designer and audio editor for this series is Jonathan McMichael, who also composed our theme song. Thanks to Frank Collada, Dennis Griffin, Frank Calabrese Jr., and Mob Museum Vice President of Exhibits and Programs, Jeff Schumacher, for sitting down with me for this episode. Select clips used in the intro to this episode come from the Oral History Research Center in the UNLV Library Special Collections and Archives. Music and sound effects are from Stephen Arnold Music and Motion Array. You can learn more about the Mob Museum by visiting themobmuseum.org, and you can learn more about Mobbed Up by visiting reviewjournal.com backslash podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>